Welcome to FRT episode 87. I'm Brad Carr of the IF in the suburbs of Washington. We can't cross the border to Canada physically at present, but we're going to make that link in this episode, speaking with SecureKey's founder, CEO and chairman, Greg Wolfond in Toronto. Greg is a serial entrepreneur with experience across fintech, security and mobile. We were delighted to host him in the IF's Digital Identity Roundtable in Washington, what now seems a long time ago in October 2019, and he's been a leading driver and contributor in the Open Digital Trust Initiative, which we previously highlighted on FRT episode 73. Greg, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Hey Brad, thanks for having me. A lot of interesting stuff I want to cover with you about digital identity and about SecureKey. Um, but maybe first, if I could get your sense of the ground, what it's like on the ground in Toronto at the moment. I know Ontario stepped up the level of COVID restrictions in January, uh, but it's obviously been taken very seriously up there, uh, more so than it has in the US for the most part. How are things and what's the local pulse? Yeah, I think everyone's getting pretty tired of the whole COVID pandemic. We're having a, a little bit harder time getting the vaccine in, so people are worried about the pace of vaccination. Uh, but there's light at the end. I mean, we all know, like by September, most Canadians who want to get a vaccine will get it. So it's just waiting it out and getting through till that time. The light at the end of the tunnel. And I guess in the meantime, at least we have hockey, uh, albeit with the US and Canadian teams segregated into separate divisions because of the closed border. And my family's a big NHL household, so we are eternally grateful to Canada in particular, and I guess Russia and Sweden for providing all of the athletes for our entertainment at the moment. Absolutely. It's fun to get some sports on. It's fun to get the NFL going as well, right? It's, it's good to, sports gives us something to watch and cheer about. Small things to warm the heart. So I'd like you to tell us a little about SecureKey. Uh, obviously, you partner with a lot of the financial institutions, including the IF's Canadian member banks, uh, but also with major tech firms. You're integrated into a lot of broader networks. I just wonder if you could tell us about the business. Yeah, well, SecureKey's been at this since about 2012. Like we're really trying to figure out how do you make it easier for you or me or any citizen to prove who they are, to get access to services. Um, we have about 24 million Canadians who registered for digital services. So in Canada, you can go to the tax authority, you can go get a, uh, a park permit, you can go look at your pension. And instead of having to remember an uppercase, lowercase number letter password, you can just log in with your bank. And most Canadians avail themselves of that to do it. And uh, that's, that's been a great service for us here because we, we maintain customer privacy. The bank doesn't know what service you're going to, and the government doesn't know what bank you're using. And that's what seemed to get users really running. We have a new service now, Brad, as you know, this verified me service, it goes beyond just the authentication bit that lets a user prove who they are. So show up at the government. I want to prove I'm really Greg, so I can have Royal Bank or TD Bank um, consent to let me share my data to them to prove it's me. And in addition to the banks, we have telco data. I can prove I have my phone. I can prove I have this driver's license, this document that I match. I can prove from Equifax that I'm really me and I meet this credit score. And we're adding very soon information from government coming back to other institutions. So this notion of consumer consented privacy that I can share my data where I want to is really taking off here. Yeah, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, what you've described there is really the prototype of, of what the Open Digital Trust Initiative that we've worked on is is about on a, I guess, a broader international scale. But it's a case where Canada has, has a, lot of, a lot of ways already been living it. And the example you give there of being able to log in via your bank for a range of so many other services, it's kind of, a, I think, a really critical part of where banks uh, can try and reinvent themselves and ensure that they are at the centre of a customer relationship going forward into this digital world. So. You know, that would be a really important part of the value proposition for the banks that are partnering with you, I imagine. Yeah, the, I mean, the banks see this, like in Canada, Canada's a pretty good place. We have a small number of uh, large banks, 
and they see it as pretty much an obligation, right? They're, they're not going to move the needle revenue-wise by offering these kinds of services, but they want to make it easier for their customers to get access to things like your tax authority and make it safer. They want to make it easier for you to prove who you are when you're going to rent an apartment or get a new loan or other parts. And, th and there's, a, there's a win-win, of course, because also that means when they're onboarding a customer that I can check my passport or driver's license, that I can prove I can log into another bank that I have this phone. It keeps them safer as well. So there's a there's a win-win, but there's there's really much a there's very much in Canada an obligation. It feels like, hey, we have to do this for consumers because it's the right thing to do. And that's probably a theme that I'll pick up a little further with you. But I wanted to ask your views on on what you see as the the key prerequisites for a successful digital identity. And I guess where I'm I'm thinking a little at the risk of preempting you, um, I'll pick up in a minute on the the importance of cross sectoral interoperability, which I know you've stressed in our our working group discussions. But perhaps if I can ask you that that broader open ended question to begin, you know, what do you see as the important prerequisites for digital identity? Yeah, I think the open digital trust framework that uh, uh, we talk about a lot. Brad is, is, is really moving in that direction. It's the idea of empowering a person. The, the person has the power over their data. They can consent to when and where their data is shared. Um, and they can do it with a modicum of privacy, right? So some of the open banking things that exist, there isn't really a lot of privacy. So in the UK, if I consent to share my data to a party, the bank I'm sharing from knows where I'm sharing to. And some of those models are really good. They're allowing me to share my banking data but they're not good on the privacy side. I, I don't want my bank to know when I go to mental health. I don't want my bank to know when I go to this care provider. And so there's this, this idea that I can share my data, but also I don't have to tell the party I'm sharing from where it's going necessarily. So we have this notion of triple blind privacy in Canada where the, the network shouldn't see where I'm going. And in certain cases, the provider of data shouldn't know where I'm sharing it and the receiver doesn't have to know all the information about where it came from. So those things we found were really important to getting adoption in the country, especially for use cases like healthcare, uh, and other services that consumers really value. And I think in that example, you know, you're doing that and ensuring that privacy, whether for altruistic reasons or because it's something that a consumer naturally um, is inclined to want. But it's also a really important point we see internationally where in Europe, for instance, you know, GDPR has really mandated those those sort of outcomes and that really it puts the onus on a, let's say, a small business that uh, if they're receiving customer data, they need to store it and protect it and face some very heavy fines if they don't. I would think there is immense value in an identity solution that can help to absolve a small business of that responsibility by giving them the yes, no answer around the key criteria without needing to necessarily have to take and store raw customer data, right? For sure. There's a ton of businesses just want to know that I'm over a certain age or other parts, but there's other places, Brad, where we have to share the data, right? If I'm opening a bank account or I'm opening a telco account, they need in their files to know that I'm Greg Wolfon, that I live at this address, that I have this number, that I have this email. And so we had to get the whole governance framework around this, right? So when I'm consenting, what does the consumer sign in terms of what they're doing and their rights? What does the relying party sign in terms of what it's getting? And what are its obligations when things go wrong? Because you know, the problem with a lot of these, a lot of parties think that there's a, hey, I can scan a driver's license. So there's a silver bullet. I can know this is really great and go from there. I mean, the fraudsters are onto this. They can make fakes pretty easily. So a couple of things that are beyond privacy here in Canada, this notion of multiple providers of data. So I can prove that uh, TD Bank says it's Greg, but I can also prove that I'm coming from Greg's phone because Rogers or Bell or Tellus says, yes, this comes from Greg's phone. The SIM hasn't changed in my phone. I can prove I can match my driver's license. And it's the combination of these attributes that keep a consumer safe because the fraudsters are going to try and pick off one at a time. And the, the higher we raise the bar, the harder we make it for the fraudster to perpetrate fraud. And so we have to have privacy, we have to have more attributes to get more security, uh, and we have to have this whole thing be usable by real people. 
So I want to pick up on, on two things you've just mentioned there. So, so firstly, um, it needs to be usable by real people. And I think this is one of the, the points that's most resonated in our working group discussions that, that you've stressed. It's probably been my number one takeaway, that it's, it's really critical that any solution works across sectors and that we in financial services need to not think of ourselves in a vacuum and not develop a great identity solution that just works for us. Because it's not going to get take up amongst the population if it's um, in a vacuum, if it's sector specific and into that silo. And that we need to be thinking across different sectors and integrating how you do your banking and your insurance with how you go buying alcohol, how you go entering concerts and, and travel and so forth. You also make the point there, I think, with the example about telco and, and you, know, you mentioned a number of the big Canadian providers there, this sense of, of um, being able to, to demonstrate the proof and overcome the fraudsters with that integration there. Um, so there's a real sense of needing to integrate across sectors that, I guess, in a holistic way, isn't it? In the way that we think about it for the end consumer, but also in the way that we uh, approach our architectures and how we uh, work as firms across sectors to deliver that integrated solution. There's no question that parties here realize that the more providers I have connected that are you know, trusted sources, the better I am. You, you could think about the payment card world where it's chip and pin. I must have this card and I must know my pin. Someone can't do a transaction unless they have both. They have to have and, and, and know. In, in our world, if I can log into my bank as to what I know and I can prove I have the cell phone, that gets the same kind of part. And then adding the biometric from a driver's license or passport uh, just goes a level above that. The, the truth is like, th th this is evolving, Brett. Like our, our view is uh, internationally, there's new standards coming. There's the open ID standards, which are there and, and KYC forms, but there's also these, these W3C standards that are evolving. So that, that's the WWW foundation. And those things are going to be really important. Like what we're learning is when we started, we thought, hey, this is just identity. So if I can have my bank share that I'm Greg Wolf on, that's good enough. And what we learned was it's not because most use cases need lots of data. If I want to rent an apartment, they want to know Greg, but they also want to know my credit score is over 500. They want to know my income is over this level, and they want to get paid for the first rent. If I can bring those things together, wow, you can reinvent that experience. If I'm getting a mortgage at uh, Bank of Nova Scotia, they want to know that I'm really Greg. They want to know my income is X, and they want to know from the tax authority, this is really my income. Because I can play games and move $5,000 around from bank to bank to bank to bank. So using open banking rails, I can see, hey, there's money coming in, but it isn't real. The fraudsters have just figured out how to play the system, even in these open banking markets. So we really think it's open data, and we think it's a combination of sources that make these uh, use cases so dynamic and exciting. I'm glad you used the term open data there, and you've, you've made the linkage to open banking a couple of times, and I'll, I'll take a bit of validation from this. Uh, Linda Jang, who used to be at the, the Fed here in Washington and uh, is now at, at Georgetown University, she's currently editing a book on open banking, and uh, she very kindly asked me to write a, the final chapter in which I, I talked about the the evolution of open banking needs to go beyond that and towards open data. And I cited the example of open digital identity as perhaps being the ultimate beneficiary, the ultimate direction that we, we may proceed for this. So, so I'll take a bit of validation that, that I'm, I'm thinking along the right tracks there. But if we could delve a bit further here about the Canadian experience. And you know, as we said at the outset, Canada's really been one of the, the early leaders in digital identity. There's a lot of tangible progress that's been made with, with DIAC, the Digital Identification and Authentication Council of Canada. Um, you've got a very challenging structure in a lot of ways um, with a, a genuinely federalist structure in Canada, uh, I think highly autonomous provinces and obviously structures have needed to work with each of those. COVID has, I guess, added impetus for much of the world to catch up with a lot of what Canada's already been doing. And I was wondering if you could, could tell us, and probably for the benefit of some of our international audience, you know, what's been achieved in Canada, what's the role of DIAC has been in that, and, and perhaps what are some of the challenges that you've faced? 
Yeah, I mean, Canada is not different from any other place in the world. People are looking at this. There's been a, a huge fire lit, lit under the need to be more digital and more digital more quickly with the COVID pandemic because government offices are closed, because I don't want to go into a hospital to show my health card to someone to get access to my records. And they don't want to see me or touch my document going back and forth as contactless kind of insurance. So there's a huge fire under how do we do this well. I mean, our, our system for logging into government to get your benefits, people got their benefits in a matter of days because they could go and log in with their banks. And we had to scale that up to 800 transactions a second just to make that work through the pandemic. So that's there's a lot of need and desire now. This is this is forcing on a new way of of working in Canada, like it is in the rest of the world. I mean, the, the biggest things we're learning, Brad, are similar to what you're writing in the last chapter of this book. Is that it really is open data. Just having data from my bank, my accounts, my balances doesn't really make it secure for someone relying on that to know it's really me. But bringing in the tax authority and bringing in other documents and bringing credit agencies like Equifax to say, hey, there isn't fraud happening on Greg Wolf on this combination of data is what will make us all safer and empowering the user to be in the middle of that so they're consenting to share is kind of the model so there'll be lots of things that evolve around the world to be standards we do a ton of work in the us and washington where you are with homeland security in doing a green card in a verifiable credential wallet we're now doing a project to do uh, an implementation of the social security number which isn't stealable or copyable or other parts inside that wallet uh, funded by homeland so there's a bunch of really interesting work that we're doing, but we believe in the long term, there's going to be this combination. There's going to be dynamic data, you know, my bank balances, uh, my fraud score right now, my income from the government right now. And there's going to be static data, things that could be verifiable credentials, so to speak, like my driver's license, my passport and my uni degree and other parts. And it's the combination of these things that are going to make us all safer. So we have to be able to support all of that. I can prove this is my driver's license, but I can also prove other things about it, like the bank also says I've logged in and I loaded it on this phone and I did it together. So it's this combination of things that will come together. And I think through these standards, these open ID and W3C standards, uh, we're going to get global interoperability around these things. Yeah, that's a really critical piece, I think. And um, another area of, of our work at the IF is looking at digital services trade and, and some of the connectivity across the world, which um, has is facing some challenges. Uh, Ravi Menon, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, had called out that we don't have the, the rules of the game for the international digital economy in the way that we do have from GATT and the WTO for things like the, the trade of, of physical goods. Uh, and I think it's really, really critical. And we've heard uh, Sopnendu Mohanty of the MAS talk about the pilot that Singapore and Thailand are running of linking up both their domestic payment systems and their respective national ID systems. So uh, a lot more to happen there. And uh, and I think some really interesting projects you've, you've mentioned there. The ones you talk about are these countries coming together and bringing things together. Um, in places like Singapore, the beauty of what they're doing is they're bringing together public and private to solve this, right? The public has to get involved. And they're also allowing private sector to play in that. DIAC in Canada is kind of playing that role, bringing together private sector institutions and public institutions to really make this work well together. Because it's not going to work if it's all one-sided, if it's all government or it's all private, it doesn't work. You need both. You need, in our view, you need bank and telco and government all coming together to really make it work well. It'd be great to see that the the report by the, the CPMI, the Committee on Payments and Markets Infrastructure on cross-border payments and their 19 building blocks has very much followed that same philosophy of needing to embrace the, the private sector uh, in the, the pursuit of those. And of course, two of their building blocks are very much centric to digital identity. So that's something that I'm sure we'll, we'll all together be working on a lot more going forward. 
Greg, if we, we turn to some of the, the technology trends, um, interested in, in hearing about you know, what you're most seeing and perhaps what stands out for you in terms of breakthrough technologies. Yeah, I mean, technology is incremental. I mean, people tend to see some of this as silver bullet. I can scan a passport and therefore I know you're Brad, but they're really not silver bullets, right? The, the bad folks who want to get a mortgage in Brad's name or someone else's name are good enough to figure out how do I beat that? Where, where do I go? And so our learning here in Canada is this combination of things. I check the device. I check that it's Brad. I check the fraud database. You no, know, Brad's not a fraudster. That's how we've always done uh, identity validation to do things. And just this digital world makes it more imperative that we do that more. And so we're going to end up getting trust scores of how we know it's really Brad. And we're going to get end up getting interoperability. The, the emerging standards around, as I said, W3C credentials, and those standards are not finalized yet. They're still being finalized. But the ability to have a wallet or a vault that's in a mobile app or storable in the cloud where my encryption server and my, and my storage servers are different so no one can look at my data, but I can still consent to share my driver's license, my uni degree, my doctor's certificate with someone. At the same time, I can prove I can log into my bank and I have this phone. Those things together are going to be super powerful and change the game. So, Greg, we've talked a bit about you know where this might be akin to an open banking type scenario or, or the networks of how we exchange data in different ways. But I guess one other critical aspect of that is is how do we have the governance structure around those networks? Have you given much thought around that? Yeah, one of the surprising things we found here, Brad, was the governance, the, the detail we needed on governance structure to make it really work. Um, you know, you think you could just uh, say log into a bank and share my data, and it goes to a provider over here, like a gaming company. But what happens if it wasn't really Greg? And what happens if my data was shared and then someone does bad things with my, with, with my data? What is the obligation of the relying party to keep the real customer whole and to unwind that transaction? And so we, we spent a ton of time on the governance side of that. Because if it's a fraudster and he got your name and shared something and got a mortgage in your name, et cetera, you're going to be really angry with your provider bank. So how do you fix that? And the only way we could find to fix that was to make sure there was a governance structure in place that those requesting data had an obligation to deal with GDPR, for example, and to remediate for that customer when things do go wrong. Because as good as we are, what I know, what I have, what I am, the fraudsters are going to keep raising the bar and trying to get in here. So without having a strong governance structure across the ecosystem, these things aren't going to work as well as they could. So perhaps, Greg, to conclude, but, but building on the point you've just made, you know, what's next? What would you like to see for, for digital identity, both in Canada and, and globally? And what needs to change, perhaps, to, to help make that happen? I mean, there's lots of bad stuff about this pandemic, Brad, but the, the stuff that it is driving is, is driving the need to be able to prove who I am securely and remotely to get access to services. And you know, the more services that get launched, you see the fraud stories coming out of the US with people trying to get benefits in someone else's name. We have same challenges in Canada. The, the need to prove you are who you are and consent to share your data is pretty much universal. You're going to have different views in different parts of the economy and how much can the government actually see or not see. There's different views and in the EU and in North America, it's pretty much privacy uh, plays high, highly in those markets. So this, com this notion that I can share is there. And then what, what role does government play and how much can different parties see are going to be different globally? But the level of security and the keys that protect our identity and the way we are able to share data about us. And, and I honestly believe it is much more than digital identity. It's this whole open data kind of world that we're going to have to get to because with just one entity, it's like a bank is really strong. They have all these vectors to protect me, but adding the other ones makes it exponentially stronger. If I can prove I'm coming from my phone and the SIM hasn't changed in my phone, if I can prove 
even for a bank that I've done business with for 10 years, now I'm stepping up to a, to a large mortgage. Hey, scan this document. Uh, let me check your device. Let me do other things. I think this is needed pretty much across the board because many of these relationships are years and years old. And the fraudsters are coming in with new vectors of attack. They're using all the technologies we use, AI and smarts, to come into BS to steal money out of the system. And we're going to have to raise our game to protect citizens and to protect institutions against these new kinds of fraud that are coming. It's a great point. And I think it probably underlines a sense that, that we've talked about at the IF that the digital identity is really one of the two foundational technologies for the new digital economy, the other one being cloud. Uh, but I think it's really significant that you you see a lot of very specialist development in digital identity, but you don't see it as its own silo or capability in, in and of itself. You're really emphasizing very much the integration and how you know, it can't operate in a vacuum. It needs to operate um, with the other facets through the economy. And I think it's a, a really important message. So Greg, thanks for joining us. We've, we've, we've run through, you know, I think quite a number of, of key themes there, and I'm just going to recap on a couple of them. I, I really like the way that you've been able to articulate progress made in Canada, where you know, it's been about enabling uh, this scenario where you can use your bank to log in as a means of accessing a number of different government services. You gave the example of the, the tax authority, but also non-government things in, in real estate transactions and the like. And I think it's a really important point about the theme you've mentioned throughout about the importance of the public-private partnerships and the, the importance really that, that banks and insurers are indeed integrating across sectoral lines. Um, the integration you mentioned with the Canadian telcos um, in terms of recognising your phone, recognising your SIM card, in addition to recognising the credentials that you're inputting, um, whether it's from your bank or, or where, I think is really important and it ties uh, as a, a real um, strengthener or enabler for the point you made about empowering a person and ensuring that their privacy is protected through these multiple levels of, of authentication. What an interesting point you made about the demand for contactless access to health records um, in the COVID environment. I guess it's an obvious one, but it's one I hadn't paid attention to, but it's, it's one that I think sits alongside what we've seen in the, the financial sector around the shift to contactless payments that's just happened so dramatic, uh, particularly in the first half of 2020. And a reminder, once again, that we're not unique in our industry. There's a really interesting project you mentioned with the US Homeland Security. Um, a piece about social security numbers is, is a really interesting one because it struck me as a, a newcomer to the US seven years ago, just how, uh, I don't know, I, I it just struck me as a really... Um, antiquated and, and I thought probably exposed system of how that works. So, so pleasing to see the progress earmarked there. And, uh, and lastly, you know, I think what you've really emphasised of the, the public-private cooperation, what's happened in Canada, what we see in things like the Thailand-Singapore initiative, and it comes back to the, the final point you've made about um, you know, it's all the more critical now all over the world in how we counter fraud, that we have these common themes, that there's going to be some different lenses in different countries in different regions at times where we have perhaps different cultural norms or expectations around uh, privacy legislation and the like, that there is a common theme there and, and one that through the cause of interoperability, we all need to work with. So thank you, Greg. Thanks for being on FRT with us. Thank you, Brad. Really appreciate you having me. And looking ahead on FRT, just a couple of things I'd like to highlight. We're going to be discussing the emerging world of central bank digital currencies with Johanna Leibeck-Lalia of Nordea up in Stockholm. We're going to be looking at digitalization in the Middle East and North Africa, speaking with Amir Atia Ahmed of Bank Mizar in Cairo on an interesting piece that he's written about Egypt's national digitalization strategy, and also with Yuri Miznik, Chief Technology Officer at First Abu Dhabi Bank. And we're going to talk about AML and financial crime, probably picking up some of the themes that the Greeks touched on here. We're going to discuss those with our former colleague, Adrian De La Casa, former secondee to the IF, and now back at his home with UniCredit in Munich. So please stay safe. Join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for being with us on FRT.